Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello and welcome to the latest installment of the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will & Emery and Rich Lenkov of Downey & Lenkov. We start today's show with the potential alleged ethical violations by Judge Clarence Thomas. With that, we bring in Gabe Roth, Executive Director of Fix the Court. Mr. Roth, thank you for being here. Rich, take it away. Very happy to have a very special guest on the podcast now, uh, a repeat guest. Gabe Roth is executive director of Fix the Court. He's been literally all over media and social media discussing the Clarence Thomas potential ethics issue. Gabe, thanks for coming back on Legal Faceoff. Thanks for having me, Rich. All right. So uh, Bombardier Global 5000 Jet, uh, fishing resort in the Adirondacks, uh, you know, uh, a super yacht. Did Clarence Thomas break the law in accepting all of these gifts from uh, this billionaire Harlan Crow? Right. That's that's the uh, the fifty thousand dollar question. And I say that because if he did break the law, the attorney general can open a case and find him fifty thousand uh, dollars. But unfortunately, it is not so open and shut a question. I think there's a case to be made on both sides. Uh, you know, the, the the personal hospitality exemption under the Ethics and Government Act says that you can you don't have to report uh, a personal hospitality in the facilities or property of a close friend and is a private plane or a yacht, a facility or property. But then later in the law, it says that you have to report, you have to report everything except uh, food, lodging, and entertainment. And a private plane is neither food nor lodging, nor is it entertainment. So there's some internal inconsistencies in the law. And, you know, I, I hate to say this, but it's almost it's not beside the point if he broke the law, because you know I don't expect Attorney General Garland to appoint another special counsel. And to, I just don't expect that to happen in this in this day and age. I'm almost more concerned about just what it says about being a justice in America that you think it's OK to accept these junkets. I mean, the I mean, Illinois is its own case. But in most states, the local, you know, the local state senator, the local city council person wouldn't be able to accept these types of junkets without there being intense public scrutiny and this idea that Thomas is passing it off as personal hospitality. Well, to me, it just is ridiculous that our top court has the lowest ethics standard. So something clearly needs to change there. Now, to be fair, he he's not the first justice to accept these kind of trips. Uh, other justices have been, uh, you know, uh, they, they've taken a lot of similar trips over the years, right? But yeah, that's true. I mean, mostly uh, Scalia has been, has been sort of the the, the poster boy of this. Before Thomas was, he went on dozens of free trips paid for by, quote unquote, quote, close friends uh, for hunting excursions. Um, and look, it's not look and it's not just just, ju you know, the justices we've all associate with the right. There are sort of sort of more centrist justices that have taken free trips. There was a, a bunch of trips in the 90s that Justice Kennedy and Justice O'Connor went on that were paid for by West Publishing to, to far flung locales. There were trips uh, by a, a, a libertarian think tank in the 2000s that would take different justices places. Uh, you know, Justice Ginsburg got a free trip to Petra. Justice 
uh, Breyer got a free trip to Nantucket. But to me, it's just it's the quantity, the brazenness and the identity of the people that he's going with that are just very different than than what we've seen in the past. Especially for a guy who uh, has, you know, been quoted on many occasions of saying he enjoys the simpler things in life. Right. He's been quoted widely as saying he yeah. uh, the Walmart parking Walmart, lots, the RV yeah, trips. Walmart. What happened to the Walmart parking lot? That's I don't know. Yeah, I don't know where I, I don't know where you can park the Bombardier, you know, five thousand in the Walmart parking lot. None that I've seen. I mean, the 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 the, the wall. Some of the WalMarts in in the suburbs out here in uh, in New York, <laughs> pretty big parking lots, but uh, definitely not in the city. If we even have part WalMarts here, I remember it was when I was living in Chicago. There was a big controversy about a Walmart coming to the north side. But uh, you know, look, I think that. The, the, the overall picture of, of the justices just, you know, gallivanting without any regard to how it looks is just is just insane to me. I mean, we need to figure out ways to hold the justices to account, to require their reporting to be as more thorough, to be as thorough as members of the House and Senate. Right. If you're a member of the House and Senate, you have to say you have to get approval before you go on one of these sorts of junkets. There's no approval process at the Supreme Court. And then once you come back after a a certain trip, you have to report it within 30 days. That doesn't exist at the Supreme Court either. So, you know, I mean, it's funny, like everyone has these negative views towards Congress, but at least Congress has a few laws that it's put upon itself that are a little bit more exacting than what our judges and justices have. And and let's at least get to the point where everyone's sort of on a level playing field and is equally honest with the perks that they're receiving in reports to the American people. Agree. So in response, Gabe, uh, Clarence Thomas has, in response to the ProPublica report, in response to people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying he should be impeached, lots of Democrats saying there should be investigation opened up um, Clarence Thomas uh, responded. He said that, uh, you know, he consulted with people, uh, ethics experts when uh, before all this and they cleared him. And also that his friendship with uh, Harlan Crow goes back 25 years. Uh, it's notable that Clarence Thomas's tenure at the Supreme Court doesn't go back 25 years. It goes back way more than that. So presumably after sitting on the highest court in the land for several years, he decided to engage with this billionaire and then start accepting gifts from him. Yes, that that's 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 the tell, right? It's like he mentioned in his statement, Justice Thomas did that he, you know, this quarter century friendship. Well, you've been on the court for more than three decades, so quarter century doesn't mean that much. Uh, and 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 you know, we all know the justices have friends, right? You know, Justice Kavanaugh, one of his best friends, is the vice president and general counsel of Facebook. Uh, one of uh, Justice Sotomayor's friends uh, is a, is a high powered attorney in Miami, and and look, I mean, some of these some of these individuals are also donating to the Supreme Court Historical Society, which is a whole other uh, issue. It's sort of this fake nonprofit that allows individuals to become close with the justices, and like they're supposed to run like the gift shop at at the, at the court, but they don't do much more than that. Um, you know, so the the justices definitely have friends in high places, but. To, in my research, I haven't found any single one of them that's accepting a nine-day Indonesian, New Zealand uh, a vacation, all expenses paid that if you or I were paying, it would cost half a million dollars. And even if, forget the private plane for a second, if Justice Thomas wanted to go with a friend of his to Indonesia for nine days, he is a millionaire. He could afford that. I know that two of the, both Sotomayor and Thomas 
grew up poor and it's they're both of their stories are incredible in terms of how they got to the court but every single justice in 2023 is wealthy and that, you know they're not like you know a former justice Stephen Breyer who's like a 10 multimillionaire but you know a lot of them def, you know they all have net worths in the seven figures so they could all afford fancy trips if they wanted to go on fancy trips but then you have this one justice as an outlier and again we've looked at all the other justices and they're not doing this one justice as an outlier that's saying you know I can go on as fancy trips as I want with whoever I want, when, whatever I want, and all ethics questions are resolved by by you know looking up at the air and saying that they're that they're fine when that's yeah. not the case, and there should be action, and there I think there will be action in the coming weeks to to sort of change the the rules of the road. It's baffling, and it's really the height of arrogance, and it's just such a bad look for the general public. You know, I mean, and the excuse that well. You know, should I not have friends? You know, I I circle in you know high powered uh, Washington politics, so of course I'm going to have rich friends. Well, I don't know. How about get a beer with your friends? You know, yeah. why, why does it have to? Why do you have to uh, use your friendship to you know take the trips that you're talking about on private jets and super yachts? You know, I, why why does friendship have to equal that? So. Yeah, and it's, it's and it's, the nonsense. justices pay themselves a lot. It's I mean, you know, you go out to to lunch with a, a federal judge. That they will insist on, I mean, having done this, they will insist on paying, right? Just like the basic thing, like you go out for a beer with someone like the the federal judge, the justice, the lower court, like any public official that you will go out with will insist on paying and whatever level of government. It's it's this, you know, when I was working for for New York State, there was a scandal about whether, you know, Governor Patterson was invited to the Yankees game and he didn't pay for his ticket, which you'd think the governor of a state, a Yankees game, it was actually during the World Series, it was 2009, and he didn't pay for the ticket. And, you know, you generally think, again, a governor, you should be able to go to a game for free. You're the governor of the state. I mean, he was a Mets fan, thank goodness. But, you know, still, you think, but it became a huge scandal for months. Thank goodness I was a Mets fan and I didn't invite myself to that because I would have been caught in something crazy. But, you know, that just that one acceptance of a gift because he was friends with uh, uh, Jeffrey Levine, the president of the Yankees, and he invited him. That one thing became this huge scandal. So that imagine that times 100 is what we got Clarence Thomas doing. Those were the good old days. Indeed. Last question here on legal face off, Gabe, is uh, I mean, you mentioned some in the coming weeks. You, you think there might be some action. What do you think will happen, if anything? Well, uh, Chairman uh, Dick Durbin of the Senate Judiciary Committee did announce a hearing, um, which my guess would happen. I mean, they're in they're on, in recess right now, so it'll probably happen in in, in late April or early May in the next uh, uh, when they return to Washington. Um, there are based on the based on the emails that I've received from staff on Senate Judiciary Committee, there is legislation in the works that would tighten some of the um, the rules. And and look, none of the legislation that I've seen or heard being uh, proposed is partisan in any way. They would apply the, you know, requiring the justices to not take private planes or requiring the justices or, and it would include lower court judges. Of course, there's 2,500. Let's not forget the 2,500 lower court judges. We haven't even begun to talk about some of their ethical lapses. Um, it, it would apply to everyone in the judiciary. So, you know, no private planes, uh, reporting within a month of return from a trip, where you have gone, how much it cost, who went on the trip with you. These are things that members of Congress already have to do. So including the justices uh, in that sort of rubric and, and just also having some sort of internal ethics office. So if you're a judge or justice and you say, oh, should I take that trip? Should I not take that trip? You know, what Thomas said in his statement was like, oh, I consulted people in the judiciary and some of my colleagues. Well, we don't know who. So let's have a single office 
a single clearinghouse for ethics in the Supreme Court that will help each justice navigate their ethical responsibilities. That doesn't really exist right now. There's sort of some office that sometimes might do that, but that doesn't formally in statute exist. So let's do that. And let's ensure that all the justices are singing from the same ethical songbook when they're considering what they're, uh, uh, you know, how, how to navigate their extracurricular activities. FixTheCourt.com, Executive Director of Fix the Court, Gabe Roth. Thanks for coming back on Legal Faceoff. It was great being here. Thanks, Rich. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast. We move to the conversation of the Jack Daniels Tennessee Whiskey Corporation that's not thrilled about a dog toy manufacturer using their likeness, and they're taking it to the Supreme Court. We bring in Professor Michael Grinberg of DePaul University College of Law. He's also a former clerk of the Honorable Edward Becker. Professor, thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So, Professor, a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court heard the case Jack Daniels Properties versus VIP Products, which involves the famous whiskey company Jack Daniels that's trying to stop the production and marketing of a chewy dog toy called Bad Spaniels. The toy is shaped and decorated like a Jack Daniels bottle and includes a picture of a spaniel, and it has the name Bad Spaniels on the label. And there are other elements of the chew toy that play off of the famous Jack bottle, including a statement that it is 43% poo by volume, 100% smelly. The toy is part of a line of chewy dog toys called Silly Squeakers, which purports to parody other famous brands and is manufactured by the same company. Jack Daniels claims that this violates its trademark rights and VIP products claims that its actions constitute parody and free expression. Why do you think the Supreme Court decided to take up this case? I think they probably took this case up because this the, the product of the defendant looks a little bit more like something that is merchandise. And trademark law has, over the years, largely been comfortable with the idea of trademark holders making claims to control the use of their marks when used as, you know, the the product itself that is not part of what we would normally think of as a larger artistic work. So something like a Boston Red Sox or Chicago Cubs baseball cap or a Jack Daniels T-shirt. And so I suspect that what's going on here is that to the court... This looks a little bit more like a Cubs baseball cap than it looks like, say, the Barbie girl song in which a rock group had a 
had a song that actually used the name Barbie in its title and in the lyrics of the song. And so I think the court thinks that this looked a little bit less artistic, a little bit more like a consumer product and granted cert for that reason. So, yeah, to that point, Professor, some of the justices questioned whether this was an actual legitimate parody or whether it was infringement. And, you know, it kind of calls to mind, along with what you just said, um, that these justices and judges in general who possibly aren't known to be the most creative people in the world, maybe not the most artistic people. That's why they're lawyers and judges, perhaps. But they're put in this position of deciding what is art, what is legitimate parody, which is a form of art versus copyright infringement. And that strikes me as something that's very subjective. But of course, that's the court's job, I, I guess. Well, I don't think they have to draw lines as to whether or not they think this is a parody versus whether or not this is expressive. I think it's very clear here that the product that is being sold is a chew toy that evokes the Jack Daniels mark. And consumers are buying it or not on that basis and not the perceived belief that Jack Daniels is behind the quality of the chew toy. Now, I understand that this kind of dispute can come out in the basic question of trademark infringement. But what's important about the Rogers test, which is the expressive use test that is at issue before the court, is that people who create expressive works have the leeway to operate without fear that they're going to be sued for trademark infringement and without the need to go through a very detailed factual finding to vindicate their free speech rights. And so I think the court doesn't need to get into the question of how artistic this is, but rather, is this expressive? Is the product, the thing being sold, the Bad Spaniels parody of the Jack Daniels whiskey? Insofar as I think the answer to that question is yes, that's reason to keep the test that the Ninth Circuit used to dispose of this case. So, Professor, to your point, the Supreme Court obviously has been very protective of parody. There's the Two Life Crew case um, where that song, Pretty Woman, they, they parodied it with some raunchy lyrics. And as you mentioned, the lower court actually in the Jack Daniels case um, referenced the Second Circuit decision that you mentioned, the Ginger Rogers case where she had unsuccessfully sued to block the release of the 1986 film Ginger and Fred. Mm -hmm. Do you believe, you know, I'm actually a trademark lawyer by training and have done this for a while. Um, you know, those two cases involve copyrighted works. And I know you had mentioned before the whole idea behind artistic expression. Um, it seems to me here that those cases are while they may be helpful for at least part of the analysis, that ultimately we're talking about consumer products here and we're talking about brands rather than works that are arguably protected under copyright. Well, yeah, th th this is not a copyright case. And the Two Life Crew case, of course, was a copyright case that involved the copyright doctrine of fair use. There is no equivalent doctrine in the Lanham Act of fair use. And so that's why tests like the Rogers test are so important, because there isn't something that that artists can point to or creators can point to and say, you know, th this is the four factor test or this is something transformative. This is something creative. I think if this were a copyright claim, the defendant would clearly qualify, would clearly qualify. Right. This is not a straight reproduction of the Jack Daniels mark, but there's rather some artistic creativity. The importance of things like the Rogers test is, is that it provides a similar kind of protection for artists in the trademark space. 
And uh, th- th- that's what's going on in this case. And the I, I think that the deeper question of this litigation is not so much how can bad spam, I'm sorry, how can VIP claim to be immune from a trademark infringement case because of the Rogers test that was used in the second and ninth circuit, and, and actually mo- most courts in the United States, but rather how is this even a trademark claim in the first place? How is it possible for Jack Daniels to say with a straight face that consumers are going to be plausibly confused by the bad Spaniels dog toy that somehow Jack Daniels is the source of that product? And as you know, right, with, with trademark infringement litigation, you know, commissioning of surveys and the use of the multi-factor test, it's very often possible for trademark claimants to make claims of alleged consumer confusion that are somewhat a field of what is the consumer interest. There is no consumer harm here from the prospect that somebody is going to buy a bad Spaniels chew toy. And that's what I wish courts were more focused on rather than the on the defense side for creators to have to rely on First Amendment defenses, much rather this be disposed of at the front end and say, this is the kind of thing that should not be even eligible for a trademark claim in the first place. To what extent do you think it's relevant to your point about the infringement analysis? To what extent do you think it's relevant that Jack Daniels uh, claims that it actually uh, licenses its brand to dog various dog products? Yeah, so so this kind of gets to the existence of a merchandising right and, and the idea that trademark can be used to you know, allow or vindicate the interests of brands like Jack Daniels to sort of license the promotion of their goods via third parties and and get paid for that. From my perspective, claims like that should not be entertained because this is not a situation in which the in in which the trademark is being used to designate source, but rather something more along the lines of the permission of the trademark holder. But, you know, that's life. And there's a line of cases that open the door to this. And you know, we're probably not here to, to, to litigate that issue. But it's one thing for Jack Daniels to claim license and control of a dog chew toy that just says as a straight reproduction, the Jack Daniels mark, or a T-shirt that has a straight reproduction of the Jack Daniels mark. It's quite another thing when somebody adds on creativity, expression, something artistic, something expressive that comes within the ambit of what we normally think of as being the First Amendment issue. And, you know, I, I do think, as we, we, we kind of have already talked about a little bit already, right, that this is not the kind of thing that evokes lofty considerations of an artist making a movie that, you know, makes commentary about the whiskey trade or something like the Ginger and Fred film that was issued in the Jack, in, in, I'm sorry, in the original Rogers litigation. But there still is a creative act going on here. There is still something expressive going on. And that's what the Rogers test evolved to respond to. And allowing VIP to prevail here is not going to interfere with Jack Daniels' ability to control the licensing market for straight reproductions of the Jack Daniels name. Professor, last question here on Legal Faceoff. You know, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a, I'm not a trademark lawyer, but uh, we cover a lot of these cases. And sometimes it feels like, you know, uh, these cases are just made overly complex. This case doesn't seem very complicated. It doesn't seem to be a First Amendment case. It doesn't seem to be a parody case. It seems like a straight situation where, you know, this company wanted to uh, produce a toy that they would sell a lot of. And to aid that mission, they copied. I mean, there's no question they copied Jack Daniels, right? I mean, it's just very simple. Uh, they didn't come up with this design on their own. They're copying Jack Daniels to sell more product. 
it seems to be as simple as that. And throwing in, you know, questions of First Amendment and parody and all that, it just doesn't seem to fit in this case. Um, and again, like, you know, uh, it seems like sometimes, especially when you get to the Supreme Court, you're litigating uh, these issues that really are fairly simple, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, they came up with their own joke. And the prospect that consumers are going to buy the product that is their joke and buy it for their dogs and get some pleasure out of it, right? There shouldn't be a federal case out of that. And Jack Daniels should recognize that, you know, people are going, you know, Jack Daniels is a very well-known mark. They worked really hard to become a really well-known mark. And so people make jokes about them for the same reason we make make jokes about any culturally prominent thing. And we should have the right to do that. And if somebody makes a buck off of doing that, that doesn't harm consumers and it should not be a federal case. Again, that's Professor Michael Grinberg at DePaul University College of Law. Professor, thank you very much for the time today. My pleasure. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast, Colorado could be starting a trend throughout the nation regarding corporal punishment in schools. With that, we bring in Professor Liz Gershoff of the University of Texas at Austin. Professor, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Professor, corporal punishment, which is defined as any punishment which involves the use of physical force, has been used for years in schools as a form of discipline. It's very controversial in certain parts of the country and is in the news again as Colorado considers a bill to outlaw corporal punishment in schools and daycare centers. Colorado is currently one of 22 states that allows for corporal punishment in educational settings. And other states include Mississippi and Oklahoma, which are considered among the most punitive states. Can you tell us a bit more about the current landscape of corporate corporal punishment in the U.S. and how the U.S. compares to some other countries around the world? Sure. So I can start off with the last part of that. So the U.S. is one of the only uh, industrialized countries that still allows corporal punishment in public schools. The other one is Australia. Um, and so we're kind of an outlier among countries. Within the United States, as you said, there's uh, most of the states do not allow corporal punishment in their schools, in their public schools. And even within states that allow it, most of the schools do not use it. So I looked at the data from uh, the last time the Department of Ed had the data available in 2017, 2018, and 91% of schools report no corporal punishment. So we're talking about a very small proportion of schools that just can't give up this really archaic practice. Professor, has the uh, pandemic impacted this at all? I imagine probably limited it, given uh, that kids weren't in school as much, but what impact has COVID had on any of this? That's an excellent question. Unfortunately, the Department of Education has not released any data since COVID. All the data we have is pre-COVID. Obviously, when kids were home, they couldn't be corporal punished at school, although they could still be spanked at home. Um, So unfortunately, we just don't know uh, the impacts of COVID quite yet. So, Professor, you're an internationally recognized expert on the impacts of corporal punishment on children. Putting aside the physicality of corporal punishment and the fact that many just consider it to be inappropriate and overly abusive, there are a number of other criticisms of the practice, including that it has a disproportionate racial and socioeconomic impact as well as the fact that many contend that it's ineffective in modifying bad behavior. What are your comments on those particular points? 
Yeah, there's several reasons to be concerned about corporal punishment. Uh, number one is all of the research we have about its effectiveness shows that it's not effective. It actually makes children's behavior worse. And so makes teachers or parents, uh, be, uh, their jobs harder. Um, it doesn't teach them how to behave, doesn't teach them why to behave. So in that way, it's not a good discipline technique. Um, it's also, as you mentioned, used disproportionately. So it is used more for African-American students, boys, and children with disabilities. And so they are hit in school more than we would find in their normal kind of um, percentage of the population. So that's definitely problematic. Um, so there's no evidence that it is used fairly or that it is effective in promoting good behavior. And of course, it also causes physical injury. That children are being hit with boards that are two feet long and four inches wide. Uh, and so it's not surprising they get bruises, they get cuts, they have to go to the hospital, they have to go to the doctor, they lose school because of that. I mean, if an adult was hit with an object that left an, a mark, what would we call that? We'd call it assault. And hitting somebody with a weapon, if a teacher hit another teacher with that same board, we'd call that a weapon. It's not a paddle. But in schools, we call it a paddle. And that's just really sad that children are not getting the same protection that adults currently have in our legal system. So there's many reasons to be worried. It doesn't work. It's not used proportionately, not used fairly, and it has a real risk of injury. Professor, a couple of things that strike me that are you know products of our modern era, uh, when it comes to this issue, are number one, the rise in you know armed personnel at school, although there has also been a movement to the in the opposite way, right? To remove any uh, security officers from school. But certainly in the wake of school shootings, there seems to be more appetite now for having security presence in school, arming them, arming teachers, right? We're seeing school shootings almost weekly. So I'm wondering the effect of that on having you know, more disciplined, uh, more more security officers in schools has on corporal punishment, number one. And number two, the rise in, you know, social media. Everything's on video. Everything's caught. We've seen some uh, really high profile examples in the last year or two of children horrifically being treated at school, right? Being beaten and dragged away. I mean, so I think the youngest we saw was a kid who was like, you know, four or five years old. So what effect do those two things have on this issue? I know that's a big question, lots of dynamics, but uh, what are the effects of those two issues? Well, I think both the security personnel in schools and corporal punishment have the same goal, which is to deter kids from engaging in bad behavior. And so the idea is that if you knew a punishment was coming, either from a police officer or from a teacher who might paddle you, you might be less likely to do anything bad because you're, that threat is there. So they're kind of, they have the same goal. Neither of them is actually very effective. And we know that from juvenile justice that people don't stop doing a crime because they're worried about, <laughs> like we know death penalty does not deter people from murdering people. It just doesn't. We've had the death penalty for a long time and people keep murdering people. So that it's, it's not, that doesn't actually work. And so those, those kind of punitive methods aren't really good at motivating children to behave well. Um, I don't know that one would cancel each other out or make one, the other one more likely. Um, I mean, I would be worried if I was a school that had both because children who are paddled are more likely to be aggressive. And so they're more likely to act out and be aggressive to other students, to other teachers. And so they might need more of that police, you know, influence. Uh, well, it doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be a far stretch to say that, you know, someone who is engaging in corporal punishment who is armed, that might degenerate quickly into 
you know, who knows what a shooting. I mean, that, that is a frightening thought. That is frightening. Right. Yeah. And what about, uh, I, I would imagine that, you know, a lot of uh, what we otherwise would not know of when it comes to corporal punishment is being uh, maybe dissuaded, hopefully, because of the fact that a lot of this is caught on, on video and then disseminated on social media. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The schools that, what, what we have left are this kind of 9% of schools that are the holdouts. And they, some of those principals and families even are really big proponents of corporal punishment. So they actually have no problem showing things on video. They're proud. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that that necessarily brings shame on them, although I think it should, um, which is why I think we need legislation. That Some of these communities just need, they need a law, either from the state or from the federal government saying, you know what, we're in the 21st century. We just don't do that anymore. <laughs> we don't hit people with boards anymore to control their behavior. So y'all want to keep doing that, but we're going to tell you, no, we're not doing that anymore. Um, and that just happens sometimes in our country where the government has to come in and tell either districts or counties or states what to do um, just to kind of come with the rest of the norms of the country. Um, and so there is legislation, as you said, Colorado has legislation that's now at the governor's desk. Idaho actually just banned it as well. Uh, Oklahoma had a bill that was uh, heard yesterday, but I think was pulled for next year. So there is movement among the states to try to finally get rid of this practice once and for all. And there have been some federal bills. Um, and there was one, I think, I don't think it's been introduced yet this year, but there was one two years ago to ban it nationally that didn't get very far. But um, but there definitely are some efforts. And so what's happening in Colorado and Idaho are actually really good, good movements in the right direction. Well, to your point, Professor, in the last question, we were going to ask you what you think, how you think this is going to evolve particularly against the backdrop you've got on the one hand, what Rich profiled in terms of shootings and violence, but on the other hand, you have folks who are still standing behind corporal punishment saying that the Bible, for example, supports its existence. And you've got certain states that I don't think are going to ever support um, a, a federal law. How do you think this is going to evolve, taking into consideration the political climate we're in right now? Well, I think what's happening is that in many districts, the principals, the superintendents are realizing that corporal punishment does not work. And so they're just not allowing it anymore. So we take North Carolina. It's still legal in North Carolina to corporally, punishment, corporally punish students, but every single district has banned it. So there's an effective ban, even though there's not a state level ban. Um, so I think that's happening across the country. Even in my home state of Texas, most school districts don't allow corporal punishment anymore. but we still have a state law. So it's it's slowly happening at the kind of state of the school and district level. And so I think eventually we will get to having an effective ban in this country. Hopefully we'll have a federal ban. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, it's unfortunate that people are conflating religion and state and using the Bible to, to justify things in schools, which there should be a separation between church and state. Um, and even if there wasn't, there's a lot of things in the Bible that we don't do anymore, um, like stone people to death. So uh, there's a lot of things in the Bible that just because it's there doesn't mean that we need to keep doing it. Um, and we know that it doesn't work. We know it hurts kids. So I think we should all agree to kind of stop doing it. Again, that's Professor Liz Gershoff, the University of Texas, Austin. Professor, thank you very much for the insight today. Thank you. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. 
Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Time to move on to the legal grab bag here on the Legal Face-Off podcast. Let's get to our two esteemed guests, and we'll start with a familiar face, Sam Paniadovich, sports gambling analyst at Nesson in Boston. He also does the same for Fox Sports. Be sure to check out his podcast, Chicken Dinner. But what he leads his resume with is former moderator of the Legal Face-Off podcast. We welcome back the prodigal son, Sam Paniadovich. Just the way I wrote it for you. Thank you. Um, first time caller, long time listener. Thanks for having me back. Pleased to have you back, Sam. We also welcome in Antoinette Smith, Executive Director of Just the Beginning, a pipeline organization dedicated to improving the United States legal system. Antoinette, thank you very much for joining the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And before we go ahead into the storylines, why don't you uh, give a, a quick synopsis about Just the Beginning? Sure. Just the Beginning, a pipeline organization um, is a nonprofit, and we offer programming starting in middle school through law school graduation for students interested in law, specifically students from un- underprivileged areas. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. Pleased to have you here with us. All right, Rich, let's start. And we begin with the dilemma that regards abortion medication. Yeah, over the last few days, two federal judges uh, have dealt with this issue. One uh, um, basically uh, said that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, could no doesn't have the authority to administrate the most common way of um, uh, engaging in abortion in this country, which is a abortion pill. And then another judge went the opposite way, and that resulted in this issue being very much in flux. Uh, by all accounts, Tina, this case should make its way or a case should make its way to the Supreme Court to deal with. Um, but in the wake of the overturning uh, in, in Roe v. Wade, lots of people are obviously concerned uh, because many people who were seeking to avail themselves of the former right to terminate their pregnancy um, thought that uh, this was a way to continue to do that. And again, it was the most common way. Uh, the judge who ruled this way on the FDA is a very conservative judge, is a Trump appointee. Uh, the other judge uh, is a more liberal judge, and that shows in their decisions, I think. Um, but, you know, it calls into mind a lot of questions, not the least of, of which is if the courts can rule that the FDA cannot regulate or doesn't have the authority in this area, what else doesn't the FDA have authority to do, right? Where does that end? That's a pretty slippery slope. And again, it 
calls into question uh, the ability to, uh, you know, put together a nationwide ban on abortion, which is what many have feared in the wake of the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade. Yeah, Rich, I mean, there's so many layers to this and we could spend hours talking about it, putting aside the politics and how people feel individually about whether abortion is right or wrong. I mean, I think that this is the type of fallout that we were all expecting to see in light of the Dobbs decision. Personally, the notion of the FDA not having the authority to make decisions like this, it's these very types of decisions that is the reason why the FDA is in existence. So, I mean, I just like I can't even get past that. And then furthermore, the notion that the that the judicial branch has the authority to pull the authority from the FDA to do what they were created to do and the politicizing of the judicial branch, which, as we all know, is really improper. We know it happens. But, you know, the fact that, you know, the the way that these um, things are going down depends upon the political um, sides of the judges. And I mean, it just like it's blurring of the separation of powers. There's so many things that are just wrong with this that we could spend hours dissecting it. Those are just a few of the many things that are really troubling, um, yet expected in light of Dobbs. Yeah, I mean, Antoinette, um, in the wake of these uh, rulings that just happened a few days ago, a lot of states have already come out and said, we are either stockpiling these pills or we are going to pass legislation uh, that will continue to allow them to be disseminated. Of course, uh, drug companies have come out and said that they will sue to enforce uh, or to overturn this decision uh, to the extent that they can. It's still a single federal court judge who has decided both these cases. Ultimately, the Supreme Court will be the place where these are decided. And given the current makeup of the court, and of course, the fact that they overturn Roe v. Wade on the Dobbs decision, it doesn't seem to be uh, good news for those who are promoting the use of these abortion pills. Right. I think the Supreme Court is exactly where they wanted it to go. But like Christina said, my first thought was, if not the FDA, who? Mm -hmm. Regardless of what side of the issue you stand on, who else if not the FDA? Yeah. Uh, Sam, very conservative court. Um, You know, we uh, we didn't touch today on the Clarence Thomas case uh, involving, you know, his acceptance of gifts uh, from his billionaire friend. But, you know, many point to this as an example of maybe some of the, um, you know, the fact that the court, as Tina mentioned, is very partisan. It's more partisan than ever. It's more political than ever. And that's showing up in a lot of these decisions. And that's the way of the world right now. I mean, I, I mean, my thoughts on this issue stem sort of like Tina said, it's more big picture. You know, in the last yeah. three years, we've all been told this and that about getting vaccines, like you must get vaccines, but you can't get an abortion. You know, like I find the moving target of it and maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, it's your body, your choice in one regard, but in another, you must do this. And I I think when we keep moving these targets, is it your body, your choice, or is it not? I'm confused. I still don't know the answer to that. And I don't think anybody does. Rich, let's, or rather Tina, let's move on to some shocking new allegations in the civil lawsuit filed by the family of former Steelers quarterback, Dwayne Haskins. Yeah, Joe. So it's been a year already since Dwayne Haskins died after being hit by a dump truck while trying to cross an interstate in Florida by foot. 
The Broward County Medical Examiner ruled the death an accident after releasing the toxicology report of Haskins last year. They disclosed that Haskins was apparently legally drunk at the time he died and that there were legal painkillers in his system at the time. He was apparently only a couple feet away from making it across the road safely after he had stopped his car alongside the road and was struck and killed. He had also apparently gone out to dinner that evening with a family member after training with teammates and then had gone to a club afterwards. So apparently there's still a lot of questions here. There's information we have, but there's a lot of information we don't have. And that's the reason why his family has filed a civil lawsuit against 14 defendants um, with some pretty startling allegations, including that Haskins may have been targeted and drugged as part of a blackmail and robbery conspiracy the night before he died. The lawsuit claims that four of the defendants were the ones that drugged Haskins and the intention was to blackmail and rob him. One reason the family believes this theory is because he was wearing an expensive watch that was apparently stolen from him shortly before his death. It's also unclear to the family how it is that so many drivers who were on the road at that time were able to avoid hitting him. Um, and even a few of them were able to call 911, yet he was struck and killed by the dump truck driver, who is also another named defendant. It looks like that driver of the dump truck was impaired. He apparently uh, refused to provide a blood sample to the police at the scene and still hasn't provided alcohol test results. The truck was also going faster than the speed limit and carrying too much cargo. And there were also problems with the truck itself, including with its braking system, as well as low tread tires with separated sidewalls. So this is um, not, not shocking development, Rich. Um, I would have expected this lawsuit to have actually been filed earlier than it was. Yeah, I mean, there's two real elements going on here. This allegation that uh, the drugs in the system, the ketamine, which is, you know, also known as Special K, it's a hallucinogen, it's a recreational drug. It's, it has some health effects, but it's most often abused as a, as a drug, number one. Number two, he was tested, two separate samples were taken, uh, one in which showed he had a 0.20 blood alcohol level and another 0.24, which is you know, three times the legal limit. Um, so that's the first element that a jury is going to believe that somehow those drugs and alcohol were in his system because someone else planted them there. Haven't seen that, you know, too often successfully argued, and I've, I've defended lots of these kind of cases. Number two, that this dump truck driver who struck him, who, by the way, wasn't charged, uh, in, in fact, has not, as you stated, turned over a sample yet, um, but investigation revealed that he that he wasn't charged, that he wasn't liable, that this was an accident, that somehow he is responsible for hitting this individual who was, again, drug, uh, had a lot of drugs and alcohol in the system, I was in the middle of a busy highway in Florida when he was struck. I don't know that, I mean, if this dump truck driver was going the legal speed limit, would he not have died from being hit by a dump truck? He would have. So um, I don't see much to these lawsuits, you know, not to be, you know, too cute up, but I, I think any, you know, uh, competent defense lawyer would drive a truck literally through this whole theory. So it's unfortunate. Listen, obviously, it's a really tragic uh, event, this death of a promising young NFL player. But I think, uh, the family's trying to avoid some responsibility here. 
Uh, let's also, you know, discuss that Haskins had some issues in college with concussions and, you know, you shouldn't be mixing alcohol and, and special K with your concussion symptoms. And, and it's just, it's a bad recipe. I mean, obviously we're all very sad about what happened. It's, it's horrible. I mean, family lost, lost its son. Um, that being said, I've, I've never drank a bunch of booze, took a bunch of pills and tried to cross an interstate on foot. So I, it's, I mean, I think you're right, Rich. I think it's going to be hard to hard to prove all of that, like especially the part about that those things were planted on him. And, you know, he had a history of, of, of drinking and partying and going out. And it just I don't know. That's a tough case. That's a tough case to try and sell. Well, you raise a really interesting point that I didn't think of. And I don't even know if it was in the complaint. I, I, I wouldn't given how of a, much of a stretch this complaint is. I'm surprised they didn't allege concussion, you know, his, his NFL playing as a reason. Um, I would imagine that would be an argument too, that, you know, because of his concussions and his brain trauma throughout the course of his playing career, that was also a reason, by the way, in the, uh, Louisville bank shooting, there's now evidence that that individual was the, uh, had met multiple concussions over the years. In fact, one of the pictures released of him playing basketball, he was wearing a helmet. I've never seen a basketball player wear a helmet. Apparently, he was like Mr. Concussion was his nickname. Uh, that might be argued as a reason that he went on this terrible rampage. But yeah, Sam, that's a really good point. I imagine they'll raise that at some point in the future. But Antoinette, you see any merit? I mean, do you see any merit to these allegations to this lawsuit? Well, I initially felt bad for the family. And my initial thought it was a family trying to seek answers and closure for a very traumatic situation. But with more information, the more information I learned, the more questions I had and I couldn't quite connect all of it to see, you know, how everything that they brought forth, at least in this article, would um, result in the blame going to any of the people that were men- mentioned. It was just a really sad situation. Rich, North Carolina is trying to make participation trophies a thing of the past. Yeah, Got a lot I mean- of feelings about that. Well, this is called the Eliminate Participation Trophies Act, you know, very uh, direct and to the point. Uh, introduced by Republican State Senator Timothy Moffitt of uh, Hendersonville, North Carolina. And his stated goal is to halt the pandering that we are seeing as a society uh, in awarding every child a participation trophy, a medal, an award, a ribbon of some kind. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I actually just went through a... Uh, coaches training portal two days ago because uh, I coach a number of my kids sports as uh, as you know and uh, it got me thinking a little bit about this you know uh, I you, you do want as a coach I think it's important for me to encourage all kids and uh, you know spend a lot of time helping the kids who are maybe not as gifted as the other ones and to reward those kids so that's an important concept I also believe however as we recently saw in the uh, in the uh, uh, hubbub over uh, Jill Biden inviting the losing Iowa team to the White House in addition to LSU. And LSU said, hey, newsflash, we won. They lost. They don't come. And the decision was changed. I see some merit in that, too. You know, as someone who's played sports my whole life, I don't really believe necessarily in participation trophies. You know, there's winners and losers in sports. That's what makes sports so good. And that's what makes it such a great learning process, uh, uh, process in my opinion. So. I support this bill in some ways. On the other hand, Tina, I don't know that this is 
something the government should be involved in. It's probably a product of poor parenting. You know, this is probably something that parents should deal with and coaches who are responsible. It should be the product of maybe some local uh, discussion. But all in all, I think it's a pretty good development. Maybe a little heavy handed, but, you know. I mean, to your point, Rich, I would rather see our lawmakers focus on other things that are really much more within their purview than whether or not the world should have participation trophies. That being said, I am not a fan of participation trophies. I understand the reason why they exist, but I think a lot of us were raised in a world where there was no such thing as a participation trophy. And I think we turned out okay, Rich. So I, I, I'm a thumbs down on participation trophies. All right. Antoinette, are we coddling this kids or should they all be winners? Well, I think it has to do with, well, first of all, what else is going on that this is the bill that they presented? <laughs> but I think that it, there has, my husband coaches a lot too. It, it has to do with the league. I think that we need to make a difference with the type of league that we put our kids in. There's one that's completely competitive. It's about winning and losing. And then there's another maybe to develop skills and identifying what type of a league this is, you know, to parents, to students, when they join, you know, may eliminate participation trophies. You know, if you know I'm joining this league to develop skills or I already have skills development, I'm here to win, then you're not looking for a participation trophy. Overall, I'm down for participation trophies. Not down for it. I no, I don't want <laughs> you don't want to legislate it out, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I mean, that's you work with kids every day, right? And and yes. I mean, uh you obviously have to deal with kids of all skill levels, whether it's yes. athletic skill, academic skill, and there's a proper way to, you know, bring out the best in all sorts of kids, obviously. I was just going to say that there are lots of ways to do that that don't involve giving everyone a trophy. Right. Yeah. Sam. I, let me sort of echo what Antoinette and Tina said. I think on the severity scale, given all the things happening in the world right now, this is like a two and a half in my world out of 10. You know, I mean, it's not really a big deal either way. Um, I could tell you a story, though. I mean, when I was in Little League and we had 12 teams, teams one and two got trophies. And if you came in third or fourth, you wanted that trophy the next year. So it made you work harder and stay longer at practice. And you wanted to get that trophy the next year. I I don't think every kid should get a trophy for playing. And, and let's turn to the Olympics, right? Think about an Olympic event. There's the gold, there's the silver, and there's the bronze. And you don't get anything else under those positions. So I, I don't think there's uh, going to be an end of the world if uh, if not everybody gets a trophy for for playing on the baseball team. Does the, does the backup right fielder in Little League deserve a ribbon? I I don't know. Maybe. But I also don't really care that much. Joe, our... How does the hockey world feel about participation awards? Well, no, what I was going to say is I'm actually part of the generation that received <laughs> participation trophies, and uh, I Your like fault. to think I turned out okay. <laughs> um, by the way, I really hope all of you text me after the show of how great of a job I did, because otherwise I'll be crying in a room if I don't get those. Um, we'll get you a trophy, fun? Joe. Don't worry. What's funny, though, is I remember sitting in a uh, end-of-the-year whatever ceremony with with my entire school and my dad was kind of like moaning and groaning that he had to wait for everybody to go up and get a trophy for absolutely nothing and i'm like yeah but we tried hard and he literally laughed in my face um i, I was about 
14 or 15 where I'm looking at all these trophies in my room. I'm like, what am I doing? Like the, none of them have first place or anything. It just says the year and the sport I played, but I'm, I'm with Sam. Maybe, maybe we can give a ribbon, but then the actual trophy, the big tall trophy goes to the winning team. I mean, just, just to make everyone a little bit happy, but there's still the incentive to actually win. But uh, yeah, I think I think there's bigger fish to fry for for everyone involved with this. Yeah, we should we should do like tiers. Like first place is a really big fancy trophy. Second place is a smaller trophy, and then third place you like jam a trophy through a Mountain Dew can, and then fourth third is a plaque. Is we just there are tiers to the success. <laughs> yeah, no, there there you go. You can uh, you can go through the trash and. and Take whatever you want home if you come in fourth place or lower than that. Uh, <laughs> Tina, bigger than Ohio State trying to trademark the word the, a couple of professional sports teams are going after some bigger teams to the trademark. Yeah, Joe. So this has been a very trademark friendly legal face off podcast today. Um, this story is about two major sports teams that have made the news recently for trademark issues. Um, the first one we'll turn to is the Boston Red Sox, especially because we've got Sam here with us today. So last month, two trademark applications for the word Boston were filed in the name of the Boston Red Sox. And while it's hard to get a large group of trademark lawyers to agree on anything, There are many who are in agreement that these applications for Boston are unlikely to get registered as federal trademarks. What's interesting is that they were filed in the name of the Boston Red Sox, but it looks like Major League Baseball was behind these filings. And that on the same day, the MLB also filed similar applications on behalf of the Houston Astros and the Seattle Mariners. So the purpose of these trademark filings for Boston, um, these were filed with the United States Trademark Office, is to protect the name Boston or the word Boston for various clothing items and entertainment services, including radio, podcasts, and television. So now let's pivot to talking about the Baltimore Ravens for a second. There was another recent headline that they've been trying to trademark the term Charm City in connection with football and related merchandising items. And the federal trademark application was recently rejected. Um, so I think, you know, what's we're, what we're seeing here is with Charm City, it was rejected because it was considered to be a geographically descriptive term. And the trademark office doesn't usually protect these sorts of terms. Now, there are exceptions to that rule. If you're able to show that your mark has developed what they they call acquired distinctiveness, you sometimes can actually protect these descriptive terms. And the team has three months to respond, and I would fully expect that the Baltimore Ravens are going to at least attempt to overcome this refusal. So what I think is going on here is that these teams understandably are getting more aggressive in trying to protect both the geographical terms as well as phrases that are often um, you know, associated with them, really for enforcement reasons. For example, they're trying to get at folks that are selling unlicensed merchandise. There's a ton of money in this industry. And For the relatively nominal cost of filing a trademark application, why not see if you can get protection, Rich? Uh, Like we talked about earlier in the other um, case involving Jack Daniels, this is dumb. It's just, you know. Okay, you cannot compare the Jack Daniels case to this. Who thinks that you can trademark the word Boston? It's Boston. 
It's okay, but you know what? This is where I'm going to pull trademark lawyer on you, Rich. You'd be amazed at what people can protect. If you're able to establish a certain amount of renown and acquire distinctiveness through millions of dollars of advertising and sales, you'd be amazed at what you're able to protect as a trademark. Well, you know who also protects the word Boston? Um, Boston, the actual city of Boston. So when I think of Boston, I don't, I don't think of Red Sox. That makes no sense. Nor should they be afforded the protection that goes along with this application. So I think it's nonsense. Charm City too, like Charm City, it's like saying, you know, the Windy City or the Big Apple should be, you know, trademarked. That's just such a common term that's used by millions and millions of people and millions of people selling products, and they, you know, they should be allowed to sell that product and not be excluded from doing it. Um, they didn't come up with. I mean, you know, the Ravens didn't come up with Charm City. If they came up with it, that would be something. They're trying to say, well, it's Charm City football. Nonsense, you know. Uh, Sam, you've got some opinions on this. Being in Boston, you want to uh, pay for the right to use Boston every time you you see it on a T-shirt or something? Calendar? I have to be very careful here because this station is owned by the Red Sox, and this office is probably bugged. That uh, being said, um, I mean, you you can't own the city. I mean, you just can't own. I don't think you can. And I, I saw the update. I, I believe the Boston Globe reported that the Red Sox actually requested that. Major League Baseball withdraw the trademark and the league is probably going to agree if it hasn't already. Um, let me just say this without incriminating myself further. Um, there was a quote from a Boston University uh, law professor, Stacey Dogan. She said they're seeking the rights of the word Boston itself. The government should flat out reject this. The word Boston has a zillion different meanings. It doesn't refer specifically to that team. And I think there's a lot of truth there, and I'm probably fired tomorrow. So thank you for that. I just am now finding out that people call Baltimore Charm City. I, I never would have Same. guessed that. <laughs> Same. Uh, Rich, unfortunately, a pretty somber story here. Two Florida children are dead, and their grandmother is currently charged for both of their deaths. This is unbelievable. I mean, it's unbelievable for many reasons. Yeah, like you mentioned, this uh, woman, this woman um, named Tracy Nix was caring in Florida for two separate infants uh, for her daughter. She's 65 years old, and uh, she was charged for the death of her seven-month-old granddaughter uh, back in November. The uh, child was in a car seat, and this lady went inside. She was babysitting, and she went inside uh, and uh, had lunch. And realized, I guess, that she had left the kid in the car, and unfortunately, the child did not survive. Um, but that's not the only case. There's uh, 11 months earlier, she was watching for her daughter and the daughter's husband, a 16-month-old uh, Ezra, and that boy unfortunately drowned in a pond outside the home. Um, she fell asleep, and the kid wandered outside and drowned. Now. She has been charged, as you mentioned, um, and that's newsworthy. But what's also interesting is that the daughter is firmly supportive of this action, Tina. She says that, you know, someone has to be responsible. The husband says that two children now are no longer here. Somebody has to answer for that. If she is found guilty, the grandmother could be sentenced to between 12 and 30 years in prison. Um the boy's death, uh, there's a, a appellate course in Florida that Tina has stated that 
A one-time lapse of judgment could not establish culpable negligence of the caretaker. So there was not enough evidence there, but um, two times, is that a crime? I guess that's the question, right? You know, I think it's, unfortunately for me, I mean, I think it's a horrible, horrible situation, right? And the whole notion that the grandmother of these children could be criminally responsible for their deaths, particularly the second child who died under her care, just like you can't even wrap your head around it because it's so tragic. But at the end of the day, putting aside the fact that she is related to these children, I think that it would not be a difficult analysis for us to do at all if we were talking about someone who wasn't the grandmother. So I think, you know, what we can't do is conflate the horrible tragedy with what seems to me, at least, to be the result that logically follows under the law, that she should be held criminally responsible for these deaths. I think it's a really excellent point. I mean, if you if you replace the word grandmother with babysitter, right, would you want a babysitter to be charged here? Probably, right? Or replace the fact that she fell asleep at home. What if she fell asleep while behind the wheel, right? And she got into a car wreck and the kid died. You would certainly want someone charged in that situation. And also, you got to think, Antoinette, of what the purposes of charging anyone is, right? There's a punitive goal, right? You want to punish someone. You also want to deter other people. That's another goal of any punishment. You want to deter people from doing this. We've seen, we've covered on this show, we've seen in general a rash of, unfortunately, you know, hot car deaths. And the message has to get out somehow. And if the message gets out that if you fall asleep while your infant grandson or granddaughter is in the car, you'll be charged criminally, perhaps that'll have a bit of a deterrent effect on the next person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was just tragic. And again, removing the word grandmother. Um, and I guess everything both of you have already said, um, it, it uh, again gave me more questions than answers, wondering from the daughter's perspective, um, clearly seeing what side she's on and that something needs to happen to her mother. How did you get to the point where you left another or you felt comfortable leaving another child in her care? And now you're, you're very, I don't know how adamant she is, but she definitely thinks that, you know, she should be charged and something should happen from that. It's just, it's tragic and unbelievable. And I do think that we would feel differently if the word grandmother were removed. It's a really great point that you raise. And Sam, if I'm on the jury, right, and I think, well, the daughter is trying to assert that someone's responsible for the death of my two children. How about your responsibility? As Antoinette said, you know, if you leave your child with your grandmother once and the kid dies, that's terrible. That's unfortunate. The second time, you know, how do you trust that grandmother again? It wasn't like years later. It was 11 months later. How do you leave another infant in the care of this obviously incompetent caretaker? So there might be some responsibility to go around here. Yeah, it's like a shared deal, right? It's it's child endangerment on, on both ends of it. I mean, it's at the end of the day, two children are no longer here. And that's the worst, the absolute worst part of the story. But how do you, like Antoinette said, how do you go back to the great? Could you not find somebody else to watch the kid? Like, do you not, like, how does this happen twice? And you can't really give, 
you know, the mother the benefit of the doubt because this has happened twice. Right. You can't give the grandmother the benefit of the doubt because this has happened twice. So, I, I mean, I, to me, you know, if I have kids one day and I lose one because of somebody, I'm, I promise you I'm not going to give my second one to the same person. So it comes down to rational thought. And I, I just I don't understand how this was even possible the second time around after the first trip. Our next story to a bit of a different tune, Rich shall uh, start the petition to change the name of this podcast from the legal face off to legal fans only, because apparently that's where all the money is. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've covered lots of stories in, in, in uh, over the nine years we've been doing the show of uh, attorneys doing alternative things. Uh, Antoinette, when I was fortunate enough to speak to uh, some of your Students, you know, I think it came up. Uh, what else can we do? I'm sure you get that question all the time. What else can we do besides being a lawyer with our law degree? And, the answer and this is, has we, never come up. You can go into banking, you can go into politics, you can go into public service. But uh, OnlyFans was not on that list. So, yeah, this attorney who's a uh, Iranian-American model uh, quit her what she previously called her dream job as a lawyer. Work on OnlyFans. Uh, she made uh, what about forty, almost fifty thousand dollars in the first few months on the website, uh, despite the fact that she kept the account a secret. Um, Twenty-eight years old, she began to feel like maybe there was other opportunities for me. Uh, she's got a big TikTok following, Tina. She also said that there aren't many Middle Eastern girls on OnlyFans, and that's where most of her fans came from. So she said, "What the hell? I don't need this. I need to bill." Worry about the stress of billing and reporting to mean bosses like Tina and Rich. And uh, let me jump on OnlyFans and pursue my career there. I say more power to her, Tina. You know, go do what do what makes you happy. Yeah, I'm trying to separate sort of my thoughts about what she's doing with her entrepreneurial spirit. So hats off to her for being entrepreneurial. Um. But I mean, I just the whole notion of making a living doing what she's doing is just a completely foreign concept to me. Well, you know, race is kind of a bigger picture point uh, these days, Tina and Antoinette, about what people do and especially the younger generation. Again, Antoinette, something you deal with every single day. You know, I know when I was speaking to your group, it was a challenge to have the kids put their phones away for a few minutes. Right. Everyone's on their phone. You ask the average kid. Uh, what they want to do. They want to be famous, right? They want to be a TikTok star. They want to get likes. They want to get all that stuff. So um, in the professional world, you know, it's discouraged, of course, to have uh, a lot of weird stuff on your social media because it doesn't look right, especially for lawyers. But mm-hmm. I don't know. If, if she's getting paid and she's happy, God bless. Let her do what she wants. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I guess I'd... <laughs> Not a fan of OnlyFans, perhaps. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't know what happens on OnlyFans. Only what I've heard. Yeah. Um, and it <laughs> asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like something that I would uh, discuss with students. I mean, Rich, you raise a good point. I mean, ultimately, ours is a profession where your reputation is critically important. Yeah. Um, and so. You know, like there's certain professions like doctors and lawyers where you have a license, you're bound by ethics, all that good stuff. And so 
you know, whether it's fair or unfair is really sort of irrelevant. We're held to a higher standard in numerous respects than other professions are. And so my advice to her, like if she had ever asked me for my advice, which she hasn't, but my advice would be, you know, do what makes your heart sing. If this is what makes your heart sing, fine. But just understand that given the nature of what you're doing, you may foreclose a future um, career in the law, depending on which way, you know, this path takes you. Yeah. Actions have consequences. Tina, we wrap up the legal grab bag with all of us remembering Afro Man's famous hit because I got high, but I, I think we're going to have uh, some new earworm because of the song that Rich was playing a little bit earlier for us. Yeah, it's definitely stuck in my head. So, Joe, this story starts last summer when rap artist Afro Man's Ohio home got raided by seven law enforcement officers who had a warrant under suspicion that Afro Man had drugs and drug paraphernalia on his property and that he had also engaged in trafficking and kidnapping um, at that location. As part of the incident, there was footage of the cops that he recorded and which he ultimately incorporated into his social media posts and music videos. Ultimately, nothing was found during the raid. Now the seven officers have sued, claiming that this use that was unauthorized of the video footage was an invasion of their right to privacy. They claim that this use of the footage caused them emotional distress, embarrassment, ridicule, loss of reputation, and humiliation. They're seeking a few things, including an injunction for Afroman to take down the videos and posts that include their images. And they're also looking for a bunch of profits associated with Afroman's various uses of the footage, including um, his use in songs, music videos, live event tickets, as well as various merchandising. Afroman has um, actually said he's not going to take the sitting down and he's going to fight back. What's interesting you is said that, Afro, you said Afroman like he was a, like an old Jewish guy in the synagogue. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Afroman. I think it's Afro man. Okay, right. Afro man. Just because I don't have your Canadian accent, Rich, don't hold that against me. But in any event, it seems to me, you know, just a few observations first. It seems like they're really overreaching here for like the whole notion of them getting any monetary damages at all. I mean, maybe they could get some of these video posts um, or, or, or social media posts um, shut down or edited. And in any event, I don't really think that police officers that are engaging in law enforcement activities really have any reasonable expectation of privacy. So let's go to the videotape to answer that. Man, I love Afro, man. Um, always have, always will. Uh, great video. I mean, you know, the, the bottom line is Afroman is now selling uh, lots of merch with all this stuff on there. He's got a picture of, uh, you know, Peter Griffin from Family Guy with the cops looking at the pound cake. He's got another song called Lemon Pound Cake that, as you mentioned, Tina, will be in my ear now for days. It's, it's an amazing production. We're trying to get um, Mr. Afroman on the podcast to discuss his legal issues, but um yeah, like, I don't know, how can you sue for invasion of privacy when uh, you're suing for invasion of privacy, right? You're putting your name out there as a police officer. You don't want people to know your name. Maybe don't put it on a lawsuit that's getting all this attention. Uh, you know, there's questions of, 
immunity where the police officers, you know, enjoy immunity from this kind of thing. And, you know, he's uh, there, there's lots. Actually, there's lots of legal issues here. Um, yeah. The use of, you know, this family guy caricature, by the way, on the photo, I, I bet that he doesn't have the license to do that. Speaking of you know, licenses, but um, it's good stuff. It's uh, it's pretty funny. Uh, Sam, are you uh, are you a fan of the of, of Afro Man? I love Afro Man. I think the biggest disappointment from the video is that he has an electric stove. How does that happen? I mean, you should get a gas stove at this point in time. I think he has the money to do it. Um, those nice are nice kitchen, though. He's got. A, you're right. Though. I didn't notice that, but yeah, I mean, come on. Like, don't you have enough money to get a nice stove? Um, uh, look, I I think what's been buried here is is the factual part of this. Like, when they raided his house, did. Was he guilty or not guilty? We haven't discussed that yet, right? He was not charged. They didn't find anything. Yeah. Okay, so they can bust into his house, find nothing, but he can't retaliate. Like I, I sort of side with Afro Man here. I think I think it's funny. I mean, they came in. They they brought seven guys, which they didn't need seven guys. I mean, they're all pointing guns. I mean, this is this looks like they're coming after a terrorist. Yeah, and, and he's asking in the song if you found a thousand pounds of drugs in my in my suit pockets or in my CDs. I I think I'm Team Afro Man here, Antoinette. I don't know about you. I I guess I just didn't understand how it was an invasion of privacy. I couldn't get past that. I did not I did not know that that was something that um, law enforcement could do. So everything that came after. Yeah, I don't think they can do it, right? Yeah. I just don't think that there's any reasonable expectation when you go into someone's home like this that you're somehow you're going to be, you know, that your that your persona and your name, et cetera, are going to somehow be anonymized going forward. And I also think he's got some arguments here that this is all First Amendment. I mean, this is, you know, him expressing, I mean, the songs are about his experience being targeted and being, you know, confronted by law enforcement in his own home for what, what seemed to be, you know, nothing, nothing was turned up. So, you know, if for him, it was like, okay, why are you, why are the seven of you in my house going through my things when you ain't got nothing here? Yeah. And, and, Courts have held consistently that uh, surveillance video on one's property is your property. He owns that surveillance video. So I agree with all of that. And uh, again, stay tuned for uh, Afro Man perhaps being on the the next podcast. Uh, But you all were, of course, amazing. You all deserve not just participation trophy, but but merit-based trophies for your participation in Legal Face Up. But I was able to dig out some of my... Do we got here? We got uh, Sam. You'll enjoy this. Can you read the? Can you make up the uh, award here? Richard wow. Lankov, nineteen seventy nine. What is that? A comedy club trophy? What is this? This comedy blues. This was a outstanding yeah. defensive lineman. Thank you very much. And then oh. followed up with the uh, nineteen eighty one award for outstanding defensive back. When they spelled, I spelled your name wrong. Yeah, come on, figure <laughs> that out. So um, yeah, those were uh, just prominently displayed as they all are, but Sam Penianovich from Nesson. Sam, give us a quick prediction of uh, the Bruins, right? Uh, President's Trophy winner, set a record for regular season wins. Uh, the curse of the President's Trophy might, hopefully, in my opinion, as a Canadians fan, befall 
my hated Bruins, but how do you think they'll do in the playoffs? I'm rooting for them. I can also tell you that I get a uh, I get a third tier championship ring if they win Ooh. the Stanley Cup. So oh that's goodness. obviously very important. But um, with all honesty, I did my bet that I made two months ago was the Hurricanes to meet the Avalanche in the Stanley Cup final. So that's what I'm rooting for. Of course, I'd love the Bruins to uh, to win the Stanley Cup because it'll be a lot of fun around here. But uh, I I don't think the Bruins win the Stanley Cup, and that's something I've actually said on our television show it's probably not that popular out here but hey that's not my job to be popular you, you predicted a a weather disaster stanley cup final hurricane and <laughs> Hurricanes, avalanche uh, yes what about uh celtics v hawks you know i'm a huge celtics fan i'll be at one of the playoff games uh, i was very pleased to see the uh the hawks uh advance uh what are your what are your thoughts on that series it should be celtics in five buddy you should be okay you might want to get out here earlier don't come to game seven because there won't be one Sounds good. Antoinette, Bulls fan. Bulls play tonight in the play-in tournament. No, not so much. Yay, Bulls. All right, go Bulls. That's good. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, check out uh, Antoinette Smith from JTB and Sam Panianovich on Nesson. Joe Brand had to leave early uh, for Tina Martini and all of our staff behind the scenes, Lisa and Leslie. We thank them very much. We also thank very much Yvonne Barbosa, who has uh, gone on to, speaking of other pastors. She has moved on from our show, but we're in capable hands. Uh, and thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time on Legal Face Off on WGN. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.